Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor at Adweek. And I'm Ko Im, the department editor at Adweek. I guess we can still say Happy New Year, but also <laughs> Happy Lunar New Year. We're going to be talking about how Nike came up with a spot this year. But first, we are going to be talking about Super Bowl. Super Bowl is going to be a big topic for a few weeks. And joining us in studio are Drogafide Creative Directors Lauren Ferreira and John O'Paul. Thank you so much both for being with us on your first podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having us. Thank you. So I want to um, set the stage. You Let's go back to last year or way before last year. You had a few months to kind of come up with an ad for the Super Bowl, one of our favorite ads. It's a beautiful day for a joust. Indeed. Sun's out. Got my lucky loincloth, cold Bud Light, comfy throne. I don't have the plague anymore. Look, it's the Bud Light. David, do you want to give a little bit of uh, a little summary um, in your eyes of the Bud Light Game of Thrones? Spot. Yeah, some some might say it was Adweek's uh, number one ad of the 2019 Super Bowl, uh, which it was me. I'm the one who ranked it the number <laughs> one. So obviously, I'm a big fan. Um, but the uh, the Game of Thrones kind of partnership ad uh, that Droga Five made in partnership with Wyden and Kennedy New York uh, last year was one of the best head fake moments I would say in the history of Super Bowl advertising, which has become not tremendously. Uh, a place for surprises, you know? We kind of all know what's going on, you know, what to expect from the Super Bowl. And uh, last year, just uh, really... It was it was the best moment to me of the entire game of just seeing what you thought was a normal Bud Light Dilly Dilly ad turn darkly into something very different. Uh, and so we're so excited to have you both here to talk about that because obviously the uh, next Super Bowl is coming up fast and furious. And it's a great time to look back to what we and many others considered the best ad of last year and to learn how you put it together I'd I'd be curious if you could just start by talking about how like the kind of those opening moments of when you came up with the concept or how it was developed. Yeah, so I think um it's worth saying that um Bud Light was just one of the clients um and brands we were thinking about partnering with for this. We um we had this idea. We our first approach to this was we needed to do something worthy of the show itself, something as audacious as Game of Thrones. Um, the entity and just as entertaining. Mm -hmm. And we've always kind of been fans of work that um, dances around the Super Bowl rather than tries to um, more hijacks it in a way. And I think um, so that was kind of our brief to ourselves. And then when we had the idea of actually murdering another brand's character, Game of Thrones style, uh, <laughs> during the game on primetime television, mm -hmm. um, I like the idea that you guys were like, who's it going to be, like, Colonel Sanders? Who are we killing? <laughs> we're going to take down the Burger King. I mean, we totally, we were, we were thinking about the Burger King Slayer, um, the Coca-Cola uh, polar bears becoming zombie <laughs> polar bears. I mean, we wrote scripts for all so of these. Dark. We did. We, um, <clears throat> I think we even had a Jeep, Jeep one yep. at some point where it was a 
father and son tender bonding moment at a log cabin that just got torched by the dragon. So uh, are you in a room uh, much like a podcast room that we're uh, recording in, like a war room, and you're just throwing mm-hmm. ideas against the wall? And, and, and how did it well, end up being Bud Night? I think it's probably worth going back maybe even a bit further than the Super Bowl to get some context around how we did get to that. And, you know, the the overall campaign of For the Throne really did inform everything that came out of it, um, especially uh, the the joust spot at the Super Bowl. And, you know, it was re- very much a, a campaign about um, how, you know, as in the show, how far the characters would go for the throne. We felt that the fan base was so uh, so rabid and so, uh, you know, so strong that they would indeed themselves go to in- incredible lengths for for the throne. And so that became a kind of an open source brief to the world. And what we wanted to do was before we opened it up the channels to say, what would you do for the throne? We kind of challenged ourselves to go, how do we have three really big tentpole moments where we set the standard of what we're looking for? And the sort of first one out at the gate was like, well, what if, what if on the biggest stage of advertising, we convince someone to, to let us murder their main, their main character? What if we could Game of Thrones their ad? Um, and then from that point on, really show the kind of audacity we were looking for to kind of flesh out this campaign. And <clears throat> thankfully for us, like Lauren said, there were there were there were a few. Um, you know, we wrote many scripts, but you know, ultimately, uh, Bud Light and Wyden Kennedy came to the table and, and shared our vision about creating something spectacular for both Bud Light and for Thrones fans alike. So, all right, let's tap this keg. Sorry, <laughs> I had to take the line from from the spot. Um, how did how did you set up the script? How, how um, you know you wanted that surprise element um, about you know fifty seconds or a minute in of a one thirty ad? Yeah. How did that play out? I mean, I think initially we the script was almost like I think fifteen full pages of just scene by scene, and and you know. The Dilly Dilly universe is, is so is so seminal and, and, and prolific and, and we knew, you know, we kind of set up this idea of a joust and kind of the action points uh, leading up to the point where the Bud Knight gets his head crushed and then the dragon appears. But And obviously we, we, we play with some dialogue, but it was at that point that we kind of brought that to to Bud Light and then ultimately Wyatt and Kennedy who we collaborated with and, and in terms of the dialogue, you know, that that is very much their arena um, and, and their and their characters and, and their world. So, it, you know, they kind of set up this, the comedic aspect before the rug pull and Game of Thrones kind of came in and, and decimated uh, the meta world that they'd set up. And what was cool about it too is that we wanted to make sure their world felt just as authentic as ours because it, it just made that 90 degree turn even sharper. Um, so we really gave them, you know, creative, you know, leeway to make their world feel funny and real. And even like with setting up so that the spot aired later in the game. So you saw a bunch of ads um, about corn syrup and kind of, you know, just getting there so that it felt really um, drastic of a head fake when we actually um, dropped our spot. Yeah, so that was very intentional. I know yeah. um, David and I had, had talked about, you know, it was kind of like that that fourth quarter surprise. And not only that, but the idea that two brands come together, two huge agencies come together. Um, we, we've talked a bit, little bit about two it before. Directors. But two directors. Yeah. I mean, was it a logistical nightmare or did it actually <laughs> was it actually smooth? Two editors. <laughs> yeah, I mean – Exactly. Two brands, two agencies, two editors, two directors, two sound house. You know, yep. uh, it's. I'd say it was anything but smooth, but <laughs> w- but that was something we anticipated going in, and and I think it was just about having the right mindset so that when you know, like Lauren said, remaining true to both worlds, um, it was f- making sure that those those two jigsaw pieces fit together, and yeah, there were a few bumps, but nothing that uh, nothing that at any point made us question the alliance of all components coming together. I'm curious to hear about like uh, about the aspect of surprise. You know, I mentioned is kind of the rarest currency in Super Bowl advertising these days. And I remember really pestering uh, Droga 5 about what are you doing for the Super Bowl? What is it? And they would just stare at me like blankly and just say like, I cannot discuss, you know, and so there was obviously a lot of secrecy around that. Did you, did you, were you part of those conversations early on about if we really want this to have an impact, no one can see it coming? 
I mean, we were sworn to secrecy. It's funny when you see, like, the new trend of, like, teasers coming out, building intrigue for um, the game ahead, um, kind of releasing um, bits of their spot before the game. But for us, it was the exact opposite. Like, no one could know because we really wanted to shock people on the biggest night of the year. Mm. And it really did cross my mind, I think, when we got to set – I think that's where I started to feel a little nervous because there was hundreds of people walking around and, you know, you can't help but think, well, the entire, this entire thing is predicated upon surprise. Uh, so yes, it was, there were definitely a few, you know, freak out moments, but, um, yeah, I mean, in the end it was, it was at least how, how we saw it pretty seamless and it, it felt like we did. We did get the surprise we were after. And what's cool is everyone on set was from the Game of Thrones w- world, and they are all very much accustomed to having to keep secrets. Um, we even – there were some interesting moments when we were shooting where they you could tell that they wanted to tell us something about season eight, but they um, kind of hinted at it without actually telling us. But there were some interesting moments where we shot elements that we didn't even – quite understand what we were shooting, but it was for, like, a spoiler um, of the upcoming season Mm. eight. Yeah, I mean, (coughs) excuse me. So the director um, of the, you know, the HBO Game of Thrones um, part, he, his name's David Nutter, and he, you know, he shot The Red Wedding, and he did multiple episodes, and I think he did most of season seven and eight. Um, But even he was accidentally dropping spoilers here and there, and then, you know, excusing himself um, I think at one point he said, you know, after, after this, let's, let's set the mountain on fire as well. And, yeah. and, and Lauren and I, I think at the time were like, well, that doesn't really track with the storyline. And he's like, oh yeah, right. I've said too much. <laughs> Just and then, totally and then right. once it came out, we're like, oh, of course he died in a bunch of flames in at the, the end of season eight. So he was constantly doing those, those things. So everybody was, I think, um, very, uh, sensitive to the spoilers, not just from the commercial aspect, but from the show itself. Right. Oh man. Yeah, and, I, and you guys were like, wait, why do you want uh, Daenerys to be riding on the dragon cackling gleefully while everyone burns to death? <laughs> exactly. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we'll tell you later. <laughs> exactly. So much of it made so much sense when we looked back on it. Was that your favorite part, Jono, of of the process or Lauren was like watching it or the reaction? Like what was kind of the memorable part one year later or so? I mean, we're fan. I'm a fan. My We are both fans ourselves. And so it was really cool to get just a little bit of a glimpse into that world and just how much of the show comes together. And even with like some of the fire, we didn't actually end up using it in the film, but we ended up setting um, one of our um, uh, stunt actors on fire several times. Um, and <laughs> didn't use it. <laughs> and we actually didn't use it. But, um, he had a nice bump in his, in his pay. <laughs> but we, we worked with the stunt director who um, did all of the firework for, and he's actually the happiest when he's setting someone on fire. It's just funny. But um, he s- did a fire in the show where it was 30 people at once in a full burn. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just crazy to actually see um, just what he applied from our – just the dynamicism of the shots and the Game of Thrones punch that he brought to our commercial. Then just seeing how it all kind of came together in season eight it was really cool yeah. for me. Uh, <clears throat> I think from a commercial aspect – when I look back on the on on the making of of that spot, it it's not necessarily. I'm I'm really glad the surprise worked the way that we wanted it to, and that for sure from a from a consumer standpoint is is huge. But when I look back on it, it's more of a production aspect. I, I think about all the. T- I just remember at the time thinking, "This is the day it's going to die. This is the day it's going to die." Like there were yeah. just so many hurdles to get through, just from a logistics standpoint, from you know from two clients, two agencies, and and all the production aspects. But also we had. You know, George R. Martin was to approve it and, you know, D.B. Weiss and, and ben, Dave Benioff, they were, yeah, the showrunners, they were, they had to approve every cut and, you know, it was. Um, and then standards and then on, for TV. Well, that's the lot. Exactly. So as Lauren mentioned, the, the, the burning of that guy, we weren't even sure. We, at one point, we weren't even sure it was going to get cleared because of, you know, just how intense it was. Um, and there's different standards for an alcohol ad. True. Yeah. So I think in the end. I look back and, and even though it was Game of Thrones, sorry. Yeah, I mean, in the end, I look back and I'm just amazed that we weaved every, uh, you know, we, you know, every obstacle to to get it out into the world, and that impresses me the most. I think. Was it the most complicated thing you've ever worked on? 
I think just in terms of like the for the throne campaign in itself of just the expansiveness yeah. of the campaign and the scale. I think um, managing the different we had like a I remember looking at the account like flowchart of all the people who needed to approve and it was like their creative directors, our creative directors, like their clients, our clients, you know, these um, the entities John just said from Game of Thrones. So mm-hmm. I think that part of it was. <laughs> Probably the most complicated. So we shot with the actual uh, mountain, as as you know, and um, on his rider for set, he requested that he had eight ounces of prime rib ready to go every two hours. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a lot of protein. Yeah. He's yeah. a big guy. Yeah. I mean, it's like literally the strongest man on earth, right? <clears throat> To, yeah. the, to that point, we yeah. almost couldn't get him out to set because he was in the Strongest Man on Earth competition. Um, so and you were like, come on, priorities. Well, no, we were thinking about <laughs> chartering a military plane because he actually needs, like, two seats. Mm. So he couldn't actually fit in the first class seat. Yeah, 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 exactly. I believe that they couldn't find a plane with seats big enough for him. Um, so we, we actually had a, that was one more hurdle that we mentioned <laughs> earlier was at one point the mountain wasn't going to come because we couldn't fit him on a plane. Wow. wow. I, and I have to ask, I didn't get a chance to yeah. throw this in because it's a real nerd question, but who came up with the idea of having the trumpet guys play the Reigns of Castamere? That's a good one. I don't know. Uh, well, I, I remember. Was it you? No, that was actually that one. That was the showrunners. Oh, yeah. So that's the, right. The first, oh, nice. So the first cut that was there. we showed them, um, Dan and Dave uh, had heard the, the trumpets and they said, I wonder if it would be some great fan service if we just kind of put in the reins of Castamere there and let that one's for the, the true fanboys will know oh, yeah. what's like coming, I, you know? I didn't catch it until I watched it because, you know, it was it was a Super Bowl party I was watching it at. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it was, you know, noisy and, and I, I wasn't really even paying attention because I was like, oh, another Bud Light ad. And so I didn't notice until I went back and watched it after the game. I was like, those brilliant bastards. <laughs> so good. Yeah. But I mean, the best, the best part to me was just – because I do this on purpose. Like the rest of the Adweek team is always in a war room, and I'm always in a, a – uh, like at a Super Bowl party. And I do that because I like seeing the reaction. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a chaotic place to try to like live tweet and, and write articles from. But that one, people just were screaming. Like, just screaming. Like, this kind of, like, they couldn't even find the words. They're like, it's just this what is happening noise. And uh, did you guys hear many stories about, like, that, of, of just how people react? Or where, where, yeah, where, where were you? Yeah, where were you? We were in a war room. So that's so, – because okay. we were, like, captively waiting, you know, what was going to happen and see how the internet was going to react. Mm-hmm. So it's so good to hear that, like, it, it went over as we intended it at, mm-hmm. at parties. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, uh, yeah, I remember the ad airing and obviously not being – I mean, everybody in the room knew what was coming. Yeah. And I think we packed up about an hour later and everyone went home. And I, and it was it was almost like a vacuum, like the air had been sucked out of the room. It's like all the work leading up to that and then it was done and then we were like, okay, well, let's go to sleep. Let's wake up tomorrow and let's see what people people thought of it. And I think the first thing I saw was someone going, what the fuck was that? Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, I wanted to say, because you were a fanboy before, about the, the things that were in there, like the Reigns of Castamere. And a bunch of, we actually dropped, dropped a whole bunch of um, Easter eggs in the spot that if you go back and look, you'll see. Uh, we, we put the, you know, in the Dilly Dilly universe, we had shields with all the house sigils from Game of Thrones in there. Um, wow. We had, I think, um, yeah, a couple it was of flags. The shield, and, the shield of Oberon. Yeah, we put all these things in there for for people to kind of really freak out on. Oh man. Yeah, I think it I think I think definitely that you know there was it was not without its challenges, but I think in terms of the entire for the throne campaign, the the logistics of really like creating an entire campaign that is not about licensing deals, which entertainment properties typically are, but instead about, you know, devotion was the biggest thing. I mean, from the from Joust was was did exactly what we wanted it to do. It, it, it wowed people, but it also set a standard for the kind of devotion we were looking for after that. And from there, we we had a, a Bleed for the Throne, which was a giant blood drive in South by Southwest where people could uh, win a chance to see Season 8 first if they bled for it. And then on top of that, we had a Quest for the Throne where we placed uh, you know thrones around the world and people ended up traveling, uh, you know, I think two and a half million collective miles to get these selfies on thrones in these hellscapes in the middle of nowhere. You know, 
all of this stuff was happening at the same time as this Super Bowl ad. So I think from a campaign perspective, it was very uh, complicated. Yeah. yeah. And did any of that kind of sacrificial <laughs> effort spill out into like your personal life or you were just so consumed with all the work? I'm just curious, like as a creative, yeah. you know, you're working on something like a theme or um, a hashtag for the throne and, you know, does it change your mind of thinking a little bit? I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think for, for me personally, it was such a, uh, it was such a passion project just by sheer fact that I'd, I'd read all the books and I'd seen the show and I was a huge fanboy. So, you know, any moment to work on it was great. And the team we had you know, internally as well was just stellar and everybody was a well-oiled machine. And so while it was a lot of hard work, moment to moment, it was actually really fun. Yeah. And obviously our clients were amazing and they had the, you know, the IP was their most important precious gem. So with that in mind, you know, they were all about making sure the creative was up to the standard of the show and, and that held us to a great standard as well. It was, yeah, it's really interesting because we were kind of shepherds of this brand and they didn't actually have a lot of media dollars to spend. They didn't have footage they could sh give us to give to brand partners. So we kind of had to just convince all these different brand partners to kind of take this leap of faith with us and pitch them ideas that would be mutually beneficial for both of us. But... Um, it was really interesting to see, like, just the pure fandom that even, like, you know, brands have for this, um, not just everyday fans, and what everyone was willing to do um, was really cool. And I think just in terms of thinking moving forward, it really, like, reframed just trying to do something that no one else has done before, and that makes people say, oh, my God, I can't believe they just pulled that off. Mm -hmm. um, is Yeah. And I think what <clears throat> the last thing I'd say on that is like what what Bud Light afforded us this what the Joust commercial ultimately afforded us was like I said a standard so high of sacrifice that whenever as soon as that came out obviously we were inundated with um, partnership requests hmm. and we were like sure so Bud Light just let us kill their mascot what are you going to do <laughs> and so, if, so <laughs> really raise the bar <laughs> yeah I mean and in every way and so I think when when we would get requests from brands that they said we you know we would like to put the dragon on x product and we're like well that's you know that's sort of table stakes and and we're a lot higher than that um and you know ultimately we did we did end up finding uh, a lot of partners that were willing to to uh you know sacrifice something or prove their devotion for the throne and uh, but arguably you know the, the greatest sacrifice was the joust spot and murdering your uh, your icon on a world stage. Well, one one thing I'm curious about is what died with Game of Thrones to me is this one cultural touch point. You know that we live in this in this era of mostly streaming and and you know there aren't many of those water cooler things anymore. And I remember there was a lot of discussion to your point about how Game of Thrones was something everyone wanted to be a part of. Even people who didn't watch it knew about it, right? Like it didn't even matter how thoroughly you've been exposed to it. And I'm curious what you two learned or what you took away in the sense of brands after Game of Thrones were kind of desperate for finding what is the next one of those because everyone was just getting into it. We we're like, oh, we can make, you know, we can make whiskey bottles with that change color. And, you know, it's like everyone started to get really excited. And then they're like, oh, but now that one's gone. And we really don't have much, you know, Stranger Things to an extent is kind of that, like when it comes back, but not not so much. I'm just curious what you two walked away in terms of the value of these cultural shared entertainment products and, and how few of them they are and how brands can get on board with them. I think, I mean, that in and of itself was actually the the brief to us. So um, funnily enough, like they, um, I think when, you know, when HBO came to us, it, you know, it was very much in that mindset of, you know, since, you know, I don't think it had been since the Sopranos that they'd had something so ubiquitous and something so, you know, loved around the world that the goal was to, you know, not just create a season eight campaign, but how do we kind of immortalize Game of Thrones, um, you know, you know, obviously in the hearts and minds of everybody around the world, but from a business standpoint to create a franchise, like something that can live on beyond the show. And ultimately, I believe, you know, uh, please fact check me on this, but I believe that's their intention is to create spinoffs, create more storylines, really kind of dimensionalize that universe of, of Westeros and beyond. And um, 
so that that's that's how we got to what we did, which was, you know, we we could make a campaign about about the show, um, even though we had limited footage at the time, or we could sort of turn the camera to the fans and say, you know, really the show lives on with you, you know. So when when the show ends, it's you carry the torch, and that's what we set out to do. Well, so what you know to kind of close out the conversation. What would you say is your advice for the brands? And I, I don't think you hear agencies questioning whether or not they want to be in the Super Bowl because every agency probably on some level wants to be in the Super Bowl. But brands, I hear this a lot from CMOs. Oh, it's not worth it. There's really no value. Of course, those are the ones who aren't, you know, who are already kind of predisposed against it. And then other brands are on the fence. They're like, I don't know, maybe maybe if we have the right thing. What, what would you say is the takeaway you took from having not only the number one Super Bowl ad per ad week uh, of last year, but we also ranked Joust the number one ad of the year for last year. You know, it was really kind of a coup in a lot of ways. What did you walk away feeling like is makes a Super Bowl ad worth pursuing? I, I mean, I think you said it, you know, you could you could take your four million dollars and split it up into thousands of ads over the course of a year. But I think the Super Bowl gives you a chance to immediately push yourself into culture. Like it is this monocultural moment where everyone is watching the same thing um, and people are out there watching, looking for the ads. And, you know, Game of Thrones was the same way. It is this moment to be part of not just the advertising world, but have something that actual beyond ad people care about, people, you know, actually want to engage with and are um, excited about. So I would say that is, um, and the Super Bowl gives you that stage. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I would agree with everything Lauren said. I mean, it's it's one of the few times of the year when, if if, I, if the only time of the year where, you know, as, as a creative and as advertisers, you don't start off on the back foot. People are you know, I mean, you know, ads in the lives of people—they're not necessarily receptive to wanting to like the thing that they've just been served up, except on this night, where people are openly asking you to entertain them or make them feel something. Or um, so, I mean, I mean, in, in terms of advice, I mean, I'm not sure I have <laughs> advice so much as I as I think it's a great it's a great way to, like Lauren said, reach everybody and to really kind of peel back the things we deal with day to day and say, you know, what is the thing we want to show to the world yeah. and uh, and what would we be proud to do that? You know, there's nothing to hide behind. Yeah, and I think you touched upon it in, in describing what happened last year, but, you know, like, for example, for the Super Bowl, we'll see Pringles partner with the Rick and Morty franchise. So if there are any additional thoughts on, you know, um, brands working with each other. Um, the the story w- that we did on the Pringles um, Rick and Morty partnership really details you know the commitment that the brands need to have for each other and to the openness to to keep the brand identity. Um, so I don't know if you're seeing a little bit more of that um, as as you guys made a splash together with Bud Light and Game of Thrones and yeah yeah I think with partnerships it's always as you said, like staying true to each brand's world and also finding new ways to do it Um, because just a collaboration is just table stakes and that's what we found even with Game of Thrones where just teaming up. Like there was, I I think we had this example of like Star Wars Broccoli where it was just like, what? You know, that doesn't count. We did. We had the picture of Star Wars Broccoli up in our war room, I think, and it was, this was our bar. (laughs) This is our what not to do slide. Nice. Um, so I guess the last question for me is, you know, where where do you go from here? Like what's what's kind of on your mind for, for 2020? You mean in terms of ads or our yeah, own? Both. As as creative people, um, as people uh, in the space. I mean, I'm interested to see in terms of this Super Bowl, like I know Facebook's inter- um, doing some ads for the first time and what they're going to do on the second biggest platform. Um, but it's, it's going to be an interesting um, – I think Roman Coppola is doing something with Heinz. We, we had a Heinz idea of um, doing something with the Red Wedding. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, to pitch that. <laughs> I think yeah, – I mean I, I'm not – I feel like it, I'm, I'm always looking for – I mean I'm always really excited to see um, on the Super Bowl stage like what – is the next thing that pushes it to the next level or thinks about the Super Bowl or uses the Super Bowl or uh, as a way to 
show work or an idea or a campaign that is it, just sort of served up in a way that I had never would have thought of. Um, I mean, I remember, you know, not to, you know, get high on our own agency supply, but before I was even at Droga, I remember, you know, the first, I remember seeing the, um, you know, when If We Made It came out. And I think that was really the first time where I, as a, personally as a creative, had really questioned, like, you can use the Super Bowl in that way, like, that, you know, the subversion and the brilliance and the craft and the the stupidness in the best possible way of that campaign made me completely reframe what I thought about the work and about Droga 5 as an agency and as, as somewhere I would like to work and, and is, does that, has that kind of thinking in their walls. Um, and so, you know, as every year comes up, I, you know, I know I'm going to see the ads that are going to make me laugh, that are going to make, hopefully make me feel something else like, a, you know, maybe tug at my heartstrings or just might be some big dumb fun as there are every year, but I'm always keen to see the next thing that's going to kind of push the entire industry forward on, on that night. Yeah. Well, we'll all be watching. Thank you so much. Uh, Lauren Ferreira and John Paul, creative directors at Droga 5, for joining us in the studio today. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank you for having us. And next up, uh, we will go into Nike's Chinese New Year ad. And uh, again, thank you so much. Now let's take a little break. And when we come back, we'll talk about how brands like Nike are embracing Lunar New Year. And we are back talking Lunar New Year. Uh, David, Nike just released its Lunar New Year spot, uh, which really runs with the tradition of the red envelope. You wrote about it for adweek.com. Yeah, and, and we should back up a second and just kind of explain to folks who don't know much about Lunar New Year or about how brands have kind of slowly, Western brands specifically, have slowly gotten on board with it. I would say Apple has been kind of the front runner in terms of major Western brands. Uh, the Shanghai Office of Media Arts Lab over the last few years has been releasing these, like, like I almost hesitate to call them ads. They're basically short films about, like branded films about uh you know, aspects of modern Chinese culture. Uh, they're usually about kind of the, I don't know if you'd say conflict, but about the the changing nature of, of modern life in China, of young people being very urban, uh, very professional, being part of kind of the modern China, and then their parents being part of an earlier generation. And sometimes that creates tension. Sometimes it just creates a lot of effort for the young people to to bridge those two worlds. And I think Apple's done a great job with that. Nike seems to have uh, kind of gone in a somewhat similar vein with their first Lunar New Year ad. This is from their usual agency partner at the global level, Widening Kennedy, but from, again, their Shanghai office. And, um, you know, it, they took the the tradition of the red envelope, the red packet, uh, which is, you, you put gift money uh, into each year and you give, you know, different amounts to different kind of people based on how close they are to you. Uh, but uh, I think it's probably best known for kids, um, you know, are, are given these packets with a little bit of money uh, from relatives. And Nike took that and uh, and built a really fun spot around the idea of an, of an aunt who is trying to give a red red envelope to her niece uh, who's quite young and her mom has told her not to accept any of these and she says oh, i can't take it and she's like no you have to and she kind of sneaks it into her pocket um, and then that starts this annual tradition of the niece trying to dodge the envelope uh, and then the aunt finding crafty and increasingly athletic ways i mean it is a nike ad uh to <laughs> to get her the the packet <laughs> And is this a tradition that that uh, you were familiar at all with at all, uh, Co? Before before this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the envelopes aren't red in Korean culture, um, but there definitely is this, you know, passing down, gifting, bowing before receiving. Um, and, you know, wishing each other good luck for the Lunar New Year. Um, but I love how this ad and um, actually the other Lunar New Year ad as well uh, really, you know, gets into the changing kind of cultural tradition or the, you know, the the evolving kind of um, uh, attitude towards tradition um, and, and plays with um family themes, generational differences. Yeah, and, and they found a concept that 
it, I'm sure it plays very well in China. Uh, a lot of the discussion about this uh, ad has been on Weibo and these other platforms where it's all in Chinese. So, so I don't speak Chinese, and uh, I wouldn't be able to follow a lot of the public discussion about it the way I could on Twitter for a you know an English language brand. But uh, it seems like it's getting a really positive response. But it's also one that's gotten a great response from uh, people of Chinese backgrounds and families uh, around the world uh, because this is a tradition that extends to them as well. Uh, you know, celebrating the Lunar New Year and their family still does this. And, and we saw a lot of comments from people in America and in other countries saying, you know, that it kind of made them laugh. It kind of made them cry, even though I wouldn't say it's an emotional ad in the way that some of the Apple spots have been, uh, which Apple's uh, holiday ad this year was about a, uh, a, a single mom uh, basically moving out from her mother's house because her mom's like, you need to find a man uh, to take care of you. Otherwise, you know, you're just never going to amount to anything. And she's like, I don't need a guy. I can just... I can get a job. And, and, and she basically walks out of her mom's house and goes and, and takes her kid with her to be a, uh, it, you know, the mom is a cab driver. And so she's got this little kid with her. And then, of course, it ends with a touching reunion uh, between the uh, the the grandmother and the mother, uh, and it's a it's a tearjerker. This one's a little more fun, but it still plays at that. But um, but it did inspire us to reach out uh, to Wyden and Kennedy Shanghai and talk to Vivian Yang, uh, their ECD, who is kind of one of the the real rising superstars uh, on the creative scene, especially out of Asia. And uh, and you got a chance to talk to her. Yeah, and and I know you spoke with her last year about you know as a Western brand, um, keeping a brand voice, but also, um, you know, not just trying to enter um, any market blindly and really look at research. So I thought I would delve into our, uh, um, our conversation about um, the reactions to the ad and, and what went into it. Great. Well, I'm excited to hear the conversation. Let's uh, listen to a bit of your talk with Vivian Young, ECD at Widen & Kennedy Shanghai. All right. So Vivian Young... ECD at Wyden and Kennedy Shanghai. Thank you so much for joining us from Shanghai. Hey, hello. Thanks for having me here. And happy early Lunar New Year, I suppose. It is. Like, thank you. Like, we are really having a holiday mood over here. <laughs> so Lunar New Year is celebrated by basically everyone in China. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how this Nike ad came together? Uh, yeah, sure. So it has been a challenging but also very fun project to work on. Uh, as Chinese New Year, we call it Chinese New Year here or Lunar New Year. It's the same thing. Uh, Chinese New Year is like Christmas in the West, you know. So basically, it's all about family reunion, hanging out with relatives and friends in the hometown. And then in fact, you stay pretty inactive at home, you know, simply just eating and drinking. So it's not a cultural moment for sport at all. In fact, you got really lazy, you know, like as a resting at home. So we have to find an angle that is authentic to uh, both Nike and the cultural moment in the same time. And for Nike, it's always about competitive athlete spirit, right? So our team was looking into our childhood memory to see where this spirit could fit in or like, you know, like how we spend Chinese New Year together. Where can we find this competitive spirit or competitive moment? And then like uh, some of us recall, you know, uh, talk about Hong, uh, Hong Bao, which is our red podcast. Uh, red pocket tradition. So one of the long-standing Chinese New Year tradition is that the older generation will give the youngest some hongbao. Basically, it's a red envelope that you put money inside right. as a gesture of good luck. So some of us recall how when we were young, your parents would tell you not to take it out of politeness. You're supposed to be refusing it, and then they're supposed to insist. So this is kind of like a, a, a tradition that, you know, like this give and take and resistance. But then like, you know, when you say no to the old relatives, like they will always find ways to put them into your pocket, yes. in a, in a, like, you know, so like they always find ways to succeed. So we were like, hey, isn't that a form of competition as well? And that's how we start. We pick this, pick it up, this interesting insight and then turn it into a long chase across decades between this aunt and niece. It was fun. Yeah, and I know that, you know, in general, you have spoken with my co-host about, you know, really doing the in-country, the at-home research. But I love what you're telling me about, you know, looking back 
at you know your own childhood and the tradition that everyone knows and this push and pull of okay i'm not supposed to receive this and hey now it's a game of you know how can we sneak it in um and how can you refuse the envelope and um and i think that's something that you know a lot of people in china and um eastern countries might might know just instinctively and over the years but a lot of people maybe in the west might not be aware of like hey why aren't you just accepting this <laughs> gift of good fortune yeah i think the the, the funny thing is um when we when the team first brought this up, you know, there are definitely uh, some uh, non-Chinese people in the team was asking, ah, but like, why didn't you just receive it? And then like, but when we compare it to, you know, like, for example, when you go out to dinner and then people will talk about how, who is the one who paid the bill. And then there is in the same time, this kind of like push and pull as well, right? So and immediately people who uh, does uh, the, who doesn't share the same culture kind of like, ah I see what you mean so there are common ground that we find that people can understand this emotion and and in fact what is interesting about this spot is um, we realize that not like people in China loves it uh, Chinese communities across the world loves it and even the Chinese audience was like finding it really entertaining as well and so and that's what we love about it is like it of course resonant to a Chinese audience but in the same time like you don't need to know exactly what's happening to be entertained by this film yeah all you know is that you see this girl and her aunt years and years over time just you know trying to play this game and run and you know I love the twist at the end where it's um you know okay now it's my turn to play the game and we continue playing this uh, red envelope game um what has been the response you know online and across the world um have, that you've seen uh so well like you know people people we're very happy that people loves it uh a lot of people, uh, for example, Chinese audience will say, oh, yeah, this is my childhood. Some people will say, like, this is always what my parents told me, you know, to do, which is not to receive the hongbao. Then some people will talk about, wow, like, you know, how can you turn this, like, um, very obvious tradition that we're so used to into a game? So people are amused by it. And then uh, what is making it... Uh, like you know making us even happier is that like as i said non-chinese audience uh are, are amused by it and so people loves it yeah is that an intentional curation curation of um diverse culture and diverse ideas in um in shanghai with your team I think it is because um, so the we always want to uh at Wadden and Kennedy Shanghai our goal is always to do something uh, locally relevant to Chinese audience here, but in the same time, globally meaningful. We want to us, you know, the best idea always carries universal truth and emotions that we all share as human. And of course, you know, they are, they are like, we always look into cultural insight. We always look to make sure that, you know, this is something kind of like, you know, impactful like emotionally impactful to our Chinese audience but we always believe good ideas should be able to travel around the world that people can understand it like appreciate it all around the world and 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 in fact this spot interestingly was created by a creative and production team with diverse nationalities and cultural background we have you know local Chinese from different uh, provinces in China working on this project American Chinese, non-Chinese from all over the world, like in production. Uh, the director is a Westerner. Our teams are a mix. So this pretty much represents, you know, the setup of Wider and Kennedy Shanghai as well. Uh, we actually call it uh, the hot pot culture. Uh, I don't know whether you are familiar with hot pot. Hot pot is a Chinese dining experience that when you we, we is prepared with a, a simmering pot of soup stock where people put their favorite ingredients in and then cook at the table. So what's amazing about this is like the, we all cook it together. The soup absorb all sort of flavor 
and becomes uniquely delicious. And in return, it makes the ingredient taste better. So it is our metaphor, you know, for us to curate the culture we have here. It's like a metaphor to describe that this office is a place where everyone with different cultural background bring their unique talent and perspectives together and create magic. So we believe this is like, like you know, out the way to do great work that is relevant in China, but also appreciated by a broader audience. And I think this CNY, the Snacky CNY spot is one of the examples. Yeah, and I guess that's the true test of, you know, whether not just it stands the test of time, but also, to your point, um, emotionally reach uh, universally. And I like that this one, you know, is really entertaining and it has a little beat, especially with the energy of the running. Um, and in America, I think, you know, there's a lot of usage of the term melting pot. Um, I couldn't help but think of like fondue, like everyone gets to like dip in, mm. whether it's a savory or um, sweet fondue. Um, but I, I guess like I wanted to get back to the idea of translation um, across different cultures and countries. Um, you know, tell me a little bit more about the idea process in, in creating ideas that are relevant um, and, and resonant and still can reach that broader audience. What is your kind of advice or takeaway for other marketers who are maybe not um, just looking to be in China and reach global audiences, but also um, look at different pockets of, um, you know, American demographics or what, whoever it is. Right. Uh, so you mean like not just for uh, China market or like? Yeah, I think you're in this unique position of of um, bringing, you know a big brand and um, a big cultural insight together. So I guess if you have any bigger learnings from the experience or with working, uh, you know, with Nike and Wyden and Kennedy in Shanghai in, in general. Uh, so I, we always like, you know, uh, one thing we really believe in is uh, what is the brand voice of each brand? So every brands have what they believe in, their brand mission in, their personality. So uh, when we always look into the brand voice, we would then like look into, hey, how would this brand voice speak in Chinese? You know, for example, like for market here. So like what is true to this brand, but in the same time, you know, like when this brand is living in this country, like living with like uh, locals here, uh, uh, interacting with uh, local people, like what? How can we bring this brand voice to life in in Chinese language, in Chinese culture? And that's always how we start. No matter what brand it is, it could be a a sport brand from America, it could be uh, you know like uh, uh, other like car brands from Germany. It could be like no matter where you come from. And once you find the brand voice and once you find, you know, like the, the, the lo- look into the local inside, there's always something that you can connect the dots and, and start from there. And then, and then I, I think for this case, you know, like we basically is like uh, connecting the competitive Atlas spirit that Nike always believed in with, you know, like, oh, where can we uh, manifest this spirit in a, in a Chinese New Year, in a local festival? And then there is like a lot of other cases, you know, we, we, this is always what we do and we'll always believe in and always what we have fun, fun. With. Yeah, really um, pushing for that true translation. I love that. Do you have any other uh, Chinese New Year traditions? Uh, yeah, a lot of them. Uh, for example, we are um, also like we have a lion dancing so um, we are actually working on that together with IKEA, who's always also our client, uh, which we will release later. Uh, we have, you know, like the dining table have a lot of fun because, like, I I think you can imagine, like, in the Christmas dining table, I can imagine that a lot of like 
ritual and fun and emotional things that you can look into. Same as the Chinese dining table, you know, when everyone kind of sit together and then like the conversation, the tension between different generations. And then also like, you know, there's a lot of like practice and, and tradition you can look into. One thing we do try to avoid is the, of course, the cliché. I think because like everyone, this is a shared tradition, and 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 a lot of time, you know, like the emotional tension are pretty similar. It's like emotional tension between generation, and then you have to really like kind of dig into what's authentic, what's real, what is something that people haven't uh, find out yet, and then most of all, what is true to the brand. You know, why why is this brand bringing this? Uh, 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 pointing this out to you. What what does it want to say, and what does it want you to feel? So yeah, I mean, like the the the, the tradition and the cultural nuances is basically like a uh, endless treasure that you can look into for creative uh, inspiration. Yeah, um, I guess in your own words, what would you say Nike is trying to say? With this Chinese New Year ad, and Nike is always about like you know you can uh, outrun yourself, you can outrun other, you can always like you know if you're an athlete, you uh, if you have a body, you have an athlete. So that I think like we're trying to uh, uh, helping people like always to do always do sport, even in Chinese New Year, even in a in a festival that you're not supposed to do sport, you can always, you know, find the sport spirit here. Well, Happy New Year uh, to you and your family. And thank you so much for joining us uh, 13 hours ahead of New York. (laughs) No, no, no. My pleasure. Thank you. And Happy New Year to everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much uh, to you, Ko, to Vivian Yang at White & Kennedy Shanghai, uh, and also to Lauren and Jono for coming in from Droga 5 for today's episode. We packed a lot in, uh, but uh, it's, it's good to build all the excitement, especially leading up to Super Bowl. Uh, so we will have a lot more to talk about, won't we? Yeah, absolutely. Be sure to uh, keep up with all our Super Bowl coverage on adweek.com. And thank you, David, for connecting all the creatives in the room. All right. On that note, uh, our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Co-M with production assistance by Josh Rios and edited by Lane McGibney. Uh, If you have not already, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Those reviews mean a lot to us and they help new listeners discover the show. You can drop us a note anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner. We'll be back next week. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, Forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.